The very first Christmas wasn't celebrated by the church until 300 years after the birth of Christ. But the very first Christmas message was preached over 4,000 years before Christ's birth. The very first Christmas sermon was preached by God, the creator himself, and the entire human race, Adam and Eve, along with Satan, were in the congregation. The sanctuary was the Garden of Eden. And where is this first Christmas message I'm referring to? Recorded in the Bible, you may ask? Well, it's in the third chapter of Genesis, in verse 15. And in this single verse, we find the reason for the coming Messiah's birth. We find what that birth was going to reveal and what would be the results of that coming birth. Now, this verse occurs after the fall of humanity where Adam and Eve had partook of the forbidden fruit and the world's very first version of the blame game took place. See, when God confronted Adam and Eve regarding their disobedience with the question, and who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you to not eat from? That's recorded in Genesis 3, verse 11. And then Adam said, it's the woman's fault. Common argument. That's still alive and well today. It's the woman's fault. She's the one who is to blame. And indirectly, Adam also blames God. The woman, he says, who you put here with me. And of course, immediately, Eve blames the serpent. He, he deceived me. Then God places a curse upon the evil one, upon Satan, upon the world itself, and upon our labor, and upon childbirth. And no longer was humanity residing in paradise. Now it's a fallen world. But in the midst of the judgment against sin and against the devil, we find what many Bible scholars refer to as the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. In other words, the first Christmas message. Verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The very birth of Christ Jesus the, and therefore the Christmas holiday itself would be completely unnecessary if it were not for sin entering the world. You know, we commonly hear that Jesus is the reason for the season. And it's true. It's all about him and what God has done through him. But ultimately, when you really think about it, sin is the reason for the season in the first place. The sin of humanity, including your sin and my sin, is the backdrop behind the glorious event and glorious message of Christmas. See, we can never fully understand the true glory of Christmas until we understand the depths of mankind's sin. Adam and Eve's fall in the garden devastated the human race. And because of our participating in the sin of Adam, in other words, our own personal sin, sinning ourselves, we need a savior. This is why the world needs Christmas. And that's the, the sermon series we're having right now. That's the Advent series we're having right now. The world needs Christmas. And that's the message of Advent. Everyone on the face of this planet right now, everyone who's ever lived in the past and everyone who will ever live in the future will all need Christmas because we all need Jesus Christ as our Savior. Well, what does the first Christmas sermon reveal? 
Now, did you notice when I read for you a few moments ago, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God was going to place enmity between the evil one, uh, the serpent, and the woman, between his offspring and hers. And do you remember how the older translations of this, the more literal and wooden translations would translate this? They would say, between your seed and her seed. And this is an unusual way to describe a child. Normally, the seed is viewed as coming from the male. But this birth was going to be different. Yes, it was going to be from a woman. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now perhaps if you are wondering if this is really referring to Jesus at all, then consider what Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 has to say. Let me read it for you. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago as the unique seed of the woman. Born of a virgin who came as God's deliverer to defeat Satan himself. And that is the result of Jesus' birth. God came to this planet to take the battle to his ancient foe, Satan. See, we're not just celebrating a baby in a manger. We're talking about the king of creation who humbled himself and became a helpless baby in a manger and totally dependent upon those around him to then grow up and become one day the very one who would conquer death, who would conquer sin, who would conquer hell, who would conquer the grave. And yes, Satan through Herod tried to destroy Jesus by having all of the infant and toddler boys residing in Jerusalem, or excuse me, Bethlehem, slaughtered. And the evil one tried to stop Jesus' great work, but he was unsuccessful. Jesus was born on purpose. He was born for a purpose, and that purpose was to defeat Satan, to crush his head. And on the cross, Jesus defeated sin and Satan, and through his resurrection, defeated death. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, shows all of these parallels. The first one is the seed of woman. It equals the virgin birth. The second is the bruised heel, the temporary wound, Jesus' death on the cross, but he didn't stay dead because he rose from the dead. And the third is the crushed head. That equals the mortal wound, the permanent defeat of Satan. 
See, the portrayal here is of a victorious warrior destroying their ultimate enemy. The serpent stepping on his head and crushing it. And yes, the warrior's heel was wounded in the process, but the serpent was destroyed. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead were the means by which the head of Satan was crushed and his work destroyed uh, forever. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 has to say about all this. Since children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives who were held in slavery by their fear of death. Listen to what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 has to say about all this. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The late Richard Halverson, whom I actually had the privilege to hear speak in person over 37 years ago when I went to tour Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to see if that was a seminary that I was going to attend. And he happened to be speaking there at a kind of a Founders Week convention that was going on. So he was speaking each day in their chapel services. So I sat in on that. And Richard Halverson was a man who served for nearly two decades as the chaplain of the United States Senate. Prior to that, he had been a Presbyterian pastor for uh, almost three decades. Well, he uh, uh, went on to say in his talk there that Jesus, the great physician, didn't just stay alive here so that he could eliminate every generation's evils and diseases. You know, think about that. When Jesus came to earth, he could have just stayed and then he could have eliminated the bubonic plague when it came. He could have eliminated the Spanish flu when it came and many other diseases and, and, and the like. He could have eliminated COVID-19 that we have going on in the world right now. But Jesus didn't stay. And why didn't Jesus stay on earth and eliminate all of these evils that harass humanity? Here's what Helverson said. Jesus was unwilling to remain preoccupied with symptoms when he could destroy the disease. Jesus was unwilling to settle for anything less than the elimination of the cause of all the evil in history. See, Jesus went after the root cause of sin. He went after the root cause of suffering and the root cause of death when he defeated Satan on the cross. And because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because the wages of that sin is death, this is why the world needs Christmas. It's why you and I need Christmas. So I ask you today, is Jesus Christ the Savior of your life? Have you received the gift of salvation by faith? Those of you listening online, is, is that true of you? Is Christ the Savior of your life? Have you received the gift of salvation by faith? Because without doing that, you will be condemned. All of us will be condemned to an eternity apart from God. If we don't accept Christ and his offering and sacrifice for our sins, then we're going into eternity with facing the, the judgment of our own sin all on our own. Listen to what Romans 8 verse 1 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you received the gift of Christmas? If you have not, then you are under judgment. You are under condemnation. You're going to face your, the consequences of your sin all on your own. But if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no death sentence. There's no eternal death sentence. There's no condemnation for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when you think big picture here for a moment, and you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you see that humanity was becoming more and more sinful as you read through those early chapters in the book of Genesis. So much so that by the time you come to chapter 6, you have people killing one another. And then you get up to chapters 10 and 11, and people want to become like God, and they start building a tower so that they can reach up to God, and God then allows their languages to be confused and ultimately because of the sin of humanity he allows a great flood to come and destroy uh, literally everybody but one family that was left so the prophetic word of christmas from genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and the victory of the messiah seemed like a far-fetched dream frankly what it seemed like was unbelievable to believe the christmas promise was to believe the what, what at that time seemed to be unbelievable. And then thousands of years before Jesus was born, God made a promise to a man named Abram, who would, we would eventually come to know as Abraham. And it wasn't just any promise, it was also another promise that was hard to believe. Listen to it again. Pastor Kerry read it for a moment ago, but let's, let's read it one more time. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham here is nearly 80 years of age. At this point, with no children. And his wife, Sarah, isn't a whole lot younger than him. And she has been as barren as a brick her entire adult life. It's an absolute understatement to say that it looked impossible that his descendants would ever become a nation, much less a great nation. But Genesis tells us that Abraham believed the unbelievable. No matter how improbable his circumstances, he was going to trust God. And even when he did have a son named Isaac, it still looked very bleak because Isaac had two sons named Esau and Jacob, and they were at odds with one another. In fact, the younger brother stole the older brother's birthright, and the younger brother would go on to have 12 sons who had plenty of dysfunction within their own family to the point where they sold one of their younger brothers they didn't like that much into slavery into Egypt. And the long and the short of it is the descendants of these 12 brothers would end up becoming enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, some great nation. Doesn't look like a great nation uh, right now. Then there was the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, even when they were free people, because they're of their unwillingness to take God at his word, their unwillingness to trust God in what he wanted them to do. Then he was going to give them the promised land. Finally, they enter into the promised land, and things look good for a while, but eventually, because of their personal sin and their national sins, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and 
Israel, in that sense, was no longer a nation. Many were hauled off into captivity. Many intermarried with the Assyrians. And the northern kingdom was no more. The southern kingdom lasted a little over a century longer. And, you know, they had divided in the ninth century. So the, the kingdom had already divided. There was that division issues. And then the northern kingdom was carted off. Now the southern kingdom, a century or so later, is destroyed by the Babylonians. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Uh, many of the brightest and best are carted off to Babylon as captives for over 70 years. And God's promise to Abraham, and ultimately the promise of this conquering Messiah, seemed more impossible than ever. So there was no reason for the people of Israel to think God's promises were somehow going to come true. But what does God say during this highly discouraging, highly volatile time? He says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. From as far as the east is, from the west, my name is going to be great. Can you imagine what this would have seemed like to the Israelites back in the 5th century or the 4th century B.C. to hear these words of the prophet Malachi? They must have seemed ridiculous to them. Evil was winning on every front. Good was losing. God's name was being mocked among the nations. In fact, the psalmist has even acknowledged that. You can read it in the book of Psalms. They mock our God. They mock Israel. You know, God was a joke. Israel was a joke. And no one from any of these surrounding countries was looking at the status of Israel and saying, you know, I think I want to worship their God. Israel couldn't even feed itself, much less protect its own interests. And for all intents and purposes, it seemed like a nation that was on its deathbed like it was down to its last breaths. Then in 63 BC, Rome sent Pompey the Great to uh, the area of Judah and Galilee. And he conquered town after town after town until he was at the outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And thus began centuries of Roman occupation. The great promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, from 4,000 plus years earlier, seemed unlikely. The promise to Abraham thousands of years earlier seemed like nothing more than a pipe dream. Then we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When no one saw this coming or anyone could even believe that it was remotely possible God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And we pick this up in Luke 1, verse 27 through verse 33. Here's what it says. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants 
forever. His kingdom will never end. It turns out that Israel would be a blessing to the whole world after all. See what makes Christmas, you know, the Christmas story and account so believable is the fact that it's so remarkable. No one could have ever made this up. It's stretched over so many years, so many millennia, and, and add in there some additional centuries that the promise of Genesis didn't appear possible. The nation of Israel struggled. People had lost track of the promises. They had lost sight, and they had lost hope. But God was working the whole time behind the scenes, setting the stage. The Christmas story that began thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years before Christmas, and it continues now to unfold over 2,000 years later. And I ask you today, isn't it possible that the same God who worked behind the scenes back then to bring about that first Christmas, you know, that coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Christ, is still at work in this world, accomplishing his good and pleasing and perfect will? Yes, I know we're living in unprecedented times, and many people have told me that. I don't like to hear that anymore, they say. I don't like to hear about this unprecedented times. Well, I gotta tell you, I've never seen anything like this. In my 33 years of ministry with the COVID-19 pandemic and all the government mandates and the executive orders and the shutdowns, basically, in many respects, the attack on the church and the attack on the family, the loss of freedom and the loss of opportunities and the loss of livelihood for many people. Then you have all the violence that's gone on this last year, the social unrest, all the animosity toward law enforcement officers and the cutting of, of, of police departments and police departments' funds and the destruction of property and the like, all in the name of some kind of national good, then add into all of that the political turmoil that continues to embroil our nation right now. And I happen to know many Christians who have untold anxiety over all of this. Believers who think that this is it, that we're doomed, that this is the end that there's no hope for the future. And all I have to say to this, in response to this, is this is why we need Christmas. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this biblical lesson of history, that you are the God who works behind the scenes, that God, uh, you are the one who is faithful, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's been faithful through all generations. And we thank you for that. God, forgive us for the times that we've doubted you. Forgive us for the times when, as your people throughout history, we have not recognized how you have been at work. And God, you are the God who keeps your promises. You are the God who do, does what you say you are going to do. And God, this Advent season is an important reminder of that as we live in these, this crazy, mixed-up, fallen, broken world where we're facing uh, times like we've never faced in our lifetime. But God, help us to believe that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can trust you in the midst of all of this. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Savior. I pray, God, if there's anybody listening today or anybody who's here that has not uh, accepted you as Savior and Lord of their life, 
that this would be the time they would do that. This Advent season, they would come to Jesus, the one who came for them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.